Well, Timothy, as in 1 Timothy, was exhorted to correct. Timothy, from what we gather, his personality wasn't an A-type personality. But I don't know anybody that likes confrontation. Even if you're A-type personality, I, I know when I got to confront, I, I can't eat anything. My stomach hurts and can't sleep well. And, and it's just sort of torture. But yet... Uh, you know, your mind starts thinking all the reasons you can get out of it and not do it. And, and then the next time you come around, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just, I don't want to know about it. I'll just, you know, be the ostrich, hit my head in the sand and just pretend that all is well. Because I don't want to have to find out something and, and have to confront it. It's It's horrible. But as he talked about in this chapter too, that there were some guys sharing some false doctrine that was spreading like cancer. He actually named them in 1 Timothy, he named them. And he said that they're shipwrecking in regarding to their faith. And he had to turn them over to Satan that they would learn not to blaspheme. And so, he, you know, I just, I'm trying to picture myself doing this. Timothy says, maybe when he's confronted, these guys are better debaters than him, and they start out debating him. Or uh, maybe he just, those guys get under his skin, and he just wants to grab them by the neck. And, you know, I, I remember years back when we were working with the Billy Graham crusade in San Diego, and, and we had a, a, all the churches coming for a uh, training on counseling for the field at the Billy Graham crusade, and we had some picketers there that uh, believe that the King James Bible only and women should always wear dresses and never make up. They were, they were a, a real legalistic, they call themselves Baptists. I don't want to give Baptists a bad name, but that's what they call themselves. And, and uh, I remember standing outside and these guys, man, they knew how to get under your skin. And, and I was there and I was trying to figure out what they were doing and asking them to move so people could get in. They were actually blocking the way. I was a pastor on staff at Horizon at the time. And uh, I was standing there and I honestly, I've never wanted to punch somebody more in my entire life. But I didn't get a chance because the other pastors, I was having to hold them back. And, uh, and I, I, I've never experienced anything like that um, since that time. But I, I do know that you, you know, you, you've got to get the temper going, and, and especially when you see sheep being hurt or distracted or bothered um, uh, by this. And so he, he says, you've got to do it, Timothy. He told him in First Timothy, this is part of the job. It's not the fun part of the job, but it's a necessary part of the job. And so he says in verse 24, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. I find these verses, 24 to 26, are very helpful to look at a number of other translations because they really do give some insight here. The word servant is in the Greek is that word Paul uses, a bondservant, where he chose to be a slave of Christ and, and the master is giving the slave an order, right? You know, I, I remember as a kid, my mom saying, okay, you got to go pull weeds in the garden. And I just remember, oh, that was the worst of the worst, you know? Um, it's a hard thing. And so you, you, here, here's what you need to do as a good servant of Christ. 
And it's not so much what you're going to say. He tells him, you got to go into it remembering you're representing your master. And so you find that most people that are argumentative and, and often they're blind to the sin they're in or they've been indoctrinated, they probably aren't going to hear a lot of words you're going to say. And if you taped it and then you showed all your friends, they'd agree you won the debate. But yet none of those guys have changed their minds. Years ago, uh, Dr. Gish, who was a Christian um, scientist, him and Dr. Morris, and um, he would do a debate. And for about three years in a row, the guy's name, he was from USC, his name was Dr. Doolittle, no joke, but he was a leading evolutionist. And, um, you know, the first year he said he was an atheist. The next time he said he was an agnostic. And the last time he said he believed in God, but you couldn't know who he was. But interesting, that third time he debated, there are about four and a half hour debates. There would be 5,000 more people show up for these debates. Pretty, pretty amazing. I'm, they were all taped. But he got up and he said, okay, here I am again. You know, I'm still a full-on evolutionist. If you want to touch me afterwards, go ahead, you know. He was a pretty sarcastic guy. And, and he just said, you know what? I don't need this. I don't want this. This Baptist church, it was Shadow Mountain Community Church, Scott Memorial at the time, said, they don't pay me very much to do this. There's only one reason I've come back. And that is Dr. Gish, before this happens, takes me to lunch and he is the kindest person I've ever met and I just like being with him. Now, you know, to us as, as Christians, we were dumbfounded at him saying that. But that was it. Did, did Dr. Gish in his 12 hours plus debating this guy change this guy's mind on evolution at all? No, but he did change his mind about God. He did change his mind about Christians. And so he, he says, Timothy, as you're going into this, first of all, it's not, what am I going to say and how am I going to say it and I'm going to out debate him. When you go into this, the, the new King James says you must not quarrel. I like the old King James here. It says the Servant of the Lord must not strive. And I, I, I picture that when, you know, people are striving. Striving, trying to make something happen. When it's not happening naturally, it's, you know, the dominoes really aren't falling in place, but they're just going to make it happen anyway. And they stress themselves out and everybody else. There's a spirit of just tension about them because they want this thing to happen so bad, no matter what happens, they're going to force it to make it happen. That's, that's the spirit. Don't, don't go into this thing with your blood pressure already through the roof. You're going in for a battle and you're going to take this guy down. No, that's, that's not it. Quite the opposite. Interesting, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 to 20, it says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, that God and Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's half, be reconciled to God. Jesus says, hey, Paul says you may not know, but Jesus really saw himself as much or more of anything as an ambassador. And he came to a country that was at odds with the country he was representing. And he really didn't come to win the arguments. He was trying to win them, their souls, unto the king, his father, if you would. And he said that was the spirit about Jesus. He says it several times, the word reconciliation. That was just Jesus, everything he was just trying to do, reconcile the world to himself. And we see the apostles really not getting it. Why? Because often when Jesus saw the sheep hurt, um, he, he was a real leader. And he would step up and he would say to these Pharisees, quit condemning these people. You're, you're bigger hypocrites than anybody that's ever lived. You're whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones. Yeah, yeah, you're saying that because your dad's the devil. And everybody you proselyte are twice the sons of hell as yourself. Jesus had quite a few strong words to say along the line to those who were attacking the sheep. So again, I, I, I'm trying to understand this. You know, there, there's times where Jesus just sat weeping, riding in the dirt, saying, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. And they all left. And he said to the woman, caught in act of adultery, where are your accusers? And then there's a time Jesus grabbed a whip and started turning money, changing tables over and driving everybody out of the temple, saying, the zeal for my father's house has eaten me up. So I, I don't want to say, with this spirit of not being quarrelsome, that there isn't a time to, to be aggressive in dealing with wolves attacking the sheep. And so take that as you will, and, and, and I think the life of the Spirit is going to have that, that look. And so again, you're not going striving. Jesus wasn't striving. He was led by the Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit, just like Elijah was empowered when he called fire to heaven to consume the sacrifice. But when it comes to trying to win God's people who are going astray, he says there, you're to be gentle to all. You know, the only autobiographical description um, that we have of, of, that Jesus gives of himself is in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So, so he says, this, this is one maintaining thing about me. Those who are sheep and they want to come, they're going to they're find this peaceful, gentle spirit. And as the sheep cuddle up, you know, my, my wife has a very sweet spirit. 
And, and sometimes we'll go to people's houses and, you know, you want to pet the dog and they sort of snip at you and, uh, or whatever. But my wife will sit down and within two minutes, they will be cuddled up next to her. It's just like they, they have this ability to find that calm, gentle spirit and just gravitate to it. And of course, we're all jealous going, we want the dog to sit next to us, you know. But uh, here Jesus was that way and the sheep just knew it and they could just come and they, they, they sat there and, and Jesus had this gentle spirit to all. And you say, well, hold it. It doesn't sound like he had a, a gentle spirit to the Pharisees you were just talking about. You know, he still was. He, he was in love. Later, Ephesians says, speak the truth in love. I do think he had a spirit of love, of restoration. There was a spirit of reconciliation. How do we know that? Because in the book of Acts, many of those Pharisees were converted and became preachers of the gospel. Probably a lot of those Pharisees that had been rebuked by Jesus came to see their legalistic attitude, their self-righteous attitude and their condemning spirit. And, and they begin to realize this, this wasn't the Bible that they had in their hand. It was the way that the Pharisees had been interpreting it. And then he says, in NIV, I like this. It, it says in the NIV, instead of saying being gentle to all, it says you must be kind to everybody. And I like that. You know, there's just always a way, even if you have to say things that are hard for people to hear, and out of love, you got to say it in a way that's going to shake them out of their captivity. There's still that spirit of love, of meekness, of kindness. However, the word of God itself is piercing. In Hebrews 4.12, for the word of the Lord is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing between the bone and the marrow. So when you speak God's word, it is going to cut. It is going to get right through all the hypocrisy and the lies and, and shadowiness and just is going to go right to the truth. So you don't have to be one with your own aggressiveness to be sharp because the word of God will be sharp. Just let the word be sharp. But yet, when Jesus spoke to these Pharisees, he was speaking the word of God to them. Even though he called them whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones, it was God's word and it was piercing. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Look at how he describes his gentleness here in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Radical. When we were with you guys, it was like seeing a mom breastfeeding her baby and, and uh, the comfort that baby has in the bosom of its mother. Paul tells the Galatians church, in chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So he just said, when you see somebody faltering and sinning and struggling, you should just have this gentle spirit about you going, 
There's no sin that's not common to all men. The fact is, is I'm doing great this year, but I may be doing horrible next year. And, and I want to show mercy and I want to receive mercy. I, but there's just a spirit. The word restore is fixing a broken bone, snapping it back in place and putting a splint. It's a beautiful spirit of gentleness. And he goes on in verse 2 of Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The fact is, is that we've got to carry everybody else's dirt, don't we? We're one body. One's a hand, one's a foot, one's an eye. So it's not like we can just say, well, I'll just come to church and just be a part of all the fun stuff. <laughs> I don't really want to get to know anybody because then I'll have to start carrying their burdens. I just, I, I like your 15 minutes I know you after search on Sunday morning because your marriage looks great, your kids look great, you're all clean and, you know, no BO going on or anything. Everybody's hair is nice and done. And, you know, I just, I just like that part of the church. The fact is, is we are sinners and we struggle. And no matter how many years we have in the Lord, we will all continually be attacked by the enemy, the weakness of our flesh. We're going to go through a valley we didn't expect. And, and we have to have each other to carry us out of that pit. And so you say, man, that hasn't happened to me in 10 years. Well, be careful if you think you stand, <laughs> lest you fall. And that's, that's the truth of it. And so let's, let's have this spirit of gentleness and, and let's recognize this is a part of the body of Christ is, is saying, no matter what your struggle, your dirt, no matter how bad things are in your marriage or with your kids or your health or your finances or whatever it is, we're, I'm, I'm here not to knock you down and to point out how, you know, how unrighteous you are. No. I know how unrighteous I am, and I'm positive I'm more unrighteous than all you guys. And, and I just want people to help carry me and, and gently help restore me. And that's the, that's the heart of Jesus. In James, he says this. The word gentleness is also that word meekness. And it says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him tell us. Is that what it says? No. It's not about your words. Again, he says, let us show us by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So whatever rebuke you have, let it be in this meekness, this gentleness, this love. Even though what you're saying may be piercing, it may be revealing my hypocrisy. It may reveal my hate. For Jesus, as it did with the Pharisees saying, you hate me because your father, the devil hates me, and that's who is your father. Again, Jesus wasn't saying that to be mean or out-debate him. He was trying to pierce in love right to the bottom of it and, and rip. So there would be bleeding and there would be hurt, but then they would realize it's true. I'm this guy that's supposed to love people, and I want to kill this Jesus guy. Why? Does I want to hate him. He's healing people, and demons are coming out, and, but yet I want to kill him. Why? What's wrong with my heart? 
your, your legalism and your self-righteousness is taking you right down into the very pit. And so let us show it in the meekness of wisdom. He goes on in verse 17 to say this in James 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You can tell if you're trying to win the debate or get back at the person because they hurt you. You got some other thing going on that seems tainted. It's just not a pure love for them. It's not a pureness of just a gentle spirit like Jesus to want to see them restored. That was a hard thing you said to them. Yes, it was. Jesus said a lot of hard things. Every time it was love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love is not rude. You say, well, it sounded like Jesus said some rude stuff. Not, not in his heart. I, I know that sometimes the, the word of God itself sounds so, so piercing. It has, a, it has a power with it. So it says it's powerful. It's piercing. It's like a two-edged sword that it's just in there ripping on every angle. Not one-sided blade. It's a two-sided razor blade on each side. But even as that's happening, there is no doubt that your motive is pure. There's no doubt that they're not trying to stab you back because a few months ago you said something that hurt me and now I got a chance to hurt you back. It's pure. There's, there's nothing in it except the spirit of gentleness wanting to see them restored. And, and God knows that. And God will testify of that. But we need to search our hearts and say, Lord, is there any other thing in my brain other than I'm speaking to this hard word out of a love for them? And I'm, I don't want to argue. I don't want to strive. I just want to be in that gentle and quiet spirit of the Lord and just come with this meekness of wisdom. And then he says, and now how do you do it? What do you say? He says, when you open your mouth now, it is teaching. It's the word of God. This word teach here is only found in one other place. In his first Timothy chapter three, verse two, where he says, if a person desires to to do the work of an overseer, of a bishop. He desires a good work. And, and he says that person needs to be able to teach. It's one of the first things on the list. And the word there isn't, he needs to be a dynamic teacher. It, in the old King James, it says apt to teach. In other words, they just have a, 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 an adequate knowledge of the Bible, not a superior knowledge of the Bible, not an encyclopedia of the Bible, you just, you, you, you have a really good working relationship, A to Z, Genesis to Revelation of the Bible. And this is Paul going to tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He says to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine. Now listen to this, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So now you're coming in this beautiful spirit, not striving, not 
argumentative, not hateful, not, not hurtful, but you're, you're coming in with this beautiful spirit and, and you're starting to, to share the scripture with them. That's what he's saying. We can't fail if we use the Bible. In Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return me to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God says it's going to keep knocking. It's going to be a constant knocking, and God's word's going to keep coming to mind, even when they don't want it to come to mind. I had a good friend, Peter Barnes. He had been a Jehovah Witness for over 30 years. He came from England, and he, he was over a massive area of San Diego. And, and he said in his lifetime, he had gone to over 70,000 homes in the UK and, and America. And he said in those 70,000 times, 70,000 homes, he said five times, somebody said, you know what? If what you're saying is true, then why does your Bible say this? And it was just five verses. And, and it was interesting because the watchtower had come out with some outrageous, you know, one of them was where Thomas, Jesus says, Thomas, you know, here's my hand, put your finger there. Here's my side, put your hand. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, blessed are you because you see and and, and believe, but more blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Well, he had asked that question, and then in the Watchtower magazine, they came out, and their first explanation was, Thomas was cussing. My Lord, my God, it's Jesus. <laughs> and then they had a couple other explanations, just completely different, where Thomas was, was just viewing bad doctrine that he had correct later on. And all three of them were just so ridiculous. And, and it just sort of, that verse just wouldn't leave him alone. And there were some other verses. He eventually got saved, became an apologist, and, and went around speaking on this. He was an amazing guy. But um, he just said it was just a scripture, and, and they did it very politely, very lovingly. They weren't rude. They didn't slam the door, say, you stinking Jehovah Witness. What about this verse? It was just, it, there was something about them that was kind. And I know Walter Martin, he was a, an apologist. And, um, and again, I, I, you can still listen to his stuff on YouTube where, you know, talk to a Mormon or talk to Jehovah Witness. But the thing about Walter, he was incredible intellect. But when he would talk to these guys, he was always so kind. When he could just slam them, I mean, just they would quote some scripture wrong or make something that was just ridiculous. And he was ever so gentle in how he did it. But yet it's teaching, teaching the word. And then he says patient. In the New American Standard, the NIV, it says patient when wronged. I think that's right. So as you're teaching you're going to get wronged. <laughs> Be ready for it. And so when they start lashing out at you, making it personal, when you're talking about this scripture and they're bringing up insults at you, that you, you're ready for it and just, you, you don't react to that. 
The fact is, is you're talking to them because they're in foolishness. They're in error. And, and when Satan's got his claws into people, when they start getting challenged, those claws dig in deeper. And, and in Proverbs 9, 7, there's many Proverbs on this. But it says, he who corrects a scoffer will get shame for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harm, only harms himself. The New American Translator says, the scoffer will bring dishonor upon him. And it says that, that he who proves him will bring insults on himself. In Proverbs 9, 7, in the New Living Translation, it says he's going to get insulted in return of his wisdom, and he'll eventually get hurt. One translation was you'll get a scar for yourself. And so that's just part of it. It's a process. If you're going into this thinking, I'm going to share the truth and they're going to fall down and on their face and repent. And, and, uh, and I'll tell you what, I, I've had to do this many, many times. You know, I, I remember in, in one case where uh, there was a guy who was just being foolish. And, and, and there was just a number of things that he started doing. He started drinking again and flirting around with this other woman. And anyway, his wife brought him in. And, and I just shared some scriptures with him. And, and he just, everything about him just seemed broken and contrite. And, and his wife says, man, it's, it's done. And I looked at her and I said, it's 50-50. Every time somebody walks out of here, it's 50-50. You know, the quicker they repent, the quicker they get angry about it later. It's just like Jesus says, the word of God, it goes upon the street and the devil steals it away. I've seen that, where you, you share the scriptures, they are genuinely weeping, they're broken over it, and the time they get to their car leaving, Satan's already stole the seat. Or it goes in amongst the weeds. So they go back and they tell their friends what happened and, and they start giving them their gospel. <laughs> and they start getting mad. Who's that pastor to tell me what I can and can't do? Where in the Bible to say I can't drink every Friday night with my friends? You know. And then there's the seed that goes into the hard ground. It pops up real quick, but it only lasts a short time. And then the sun burns it away because it has no root in itself. So in actuality, it's, you got three quarters of a chance at not going well in the long run. Okay, you got a 25% chance that something good will come of it. And, and you just got to gear yourself towards that and, and the reality of it to say, you know, I'm sharing the word, I'm doing it gently and lovingly, and it seems like times they get through, and then the next time I see them, they're, they're madder than ever. Next time I see them, they're, they're more entrenched ever than ever in what they're saying. And it's just a part of the process. That's why you gotta be patient. You keep teaching, you keep sharing. Of course, the most important job we all know is praying like crazy, right? Paul says in, to the Second Thessalonian church in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Oh, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. I had uh, the guy who taught me counseling uh, at Horizon. That was his saying he had. Lord, just save me from unreasonable men. Um, and uh, because so often people, 
when they're stuck in their mind frame, they're stuck in their self-will. They're just unreasonable. And you're trying to get them to come to reason, but then they're going to lash out at you, and, and it's unreasonable that they're lashing out at you. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Right after he tells them that, he says, now you got to rebuke people. <laughs> so may the Lord direct our hearts in the love of God and the patience of Christ. Okay, now you got to confront some people. Verse 6, but we command you, brethren, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions which he received from us. In verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we are not disorderly among you. In verse 14 and 15 of 2 Thessalonians, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You know, it's interesting in dealing with this situation with Gil and Carol here at our church, our former pastor that ran off with the church secretary. You know, it's interesting how, how some people are only wanting and willing to see it on a soulish basis. You know, on a human level, yeah, let's just all live and let live. Don't worry, be happy. I, I mean, we all want that, right? Just, just, it doesn't matter. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Sounds good to me, man. On, a, on just a human, soulish level, well, they're humans and they need friends too. They're human and, 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 and we should be willing to, you know, do what we used to do with them, even though they're wrong. But, you know, on a soulish level, I can, I can understand. I just need to love them and comfort them and be kind to them. I, I get that. But on the spiritual level, 1 Corinthians 5 says, you count them as an unbeliever. Matthew 18 says, you count them as a tax collector and a sinner. He says, put that person out until they come to repentance. 1 Corinthians 5 he makes it as plain as day. Do not break bread with them. Do not even eat with them. Do not fellowship. There's people who are like, well, you know, that may be your position, but I'm superior because I know that even though they're horribly wrong, I can break bread with them. I can still be their friend and this kind of thing. And it's like, I get it. I get it. And I, am I, do I think you're the big sinner? No. But I, I think that you are not spiritually appraising things right. I, I get it. On a human level, I'm 100% with you. And that's why you go to a, a counselor or a psychologist they can diagnose you correctly. I think most of the time they can tell you accurately how screwed, you're up, how screwed up you are and, and what ways you've been screwed up by your parents and your life and bad choices. But all they can do is help you on a soulish level to get better. Quit feeling guilty. Just forget about it. You know, and, and all these things are helpful on a soulish level. But so often the real healing won't come until we spiritually appraise it and say, God's word says this. Well, how does, how is that going to fix anything? You need to, you need to greet 
your enemy. Love him, bless him, start praying for him. You're saying praying for my enemy is gonna change my bitterness? Yes. I mean, this is spiritual. The natural mind can't appraise these things. They can't get this. In the same way, do, do I think Gil and Carol became Satan worshipers and they're out shooting people and robbing banks? And No, I, I, think, I think they're probably good employees. I think they are very nice people. If they could hunt, they can still hunt. If they could sow, they can still sow. If they were likable in certain personality traits, they still are. But spiritually, for them to come to repentance, we've got to do our part. And when I, people come and, and very proudly tell me that they're not buying into the 1 Corinthians 5 thing, I, I just like, you know what? It's on you, man. I'm not going to count you as an enemy, but I'm going to admonish you as a brother. You're being natural-minded, soulish-minded. You're not being spiritually-minded, and you're not helping them by being their friend. You're hurting them. In verse 25, he goes on to say, comes back to the same point of humility, gentleness, meekness, correcting those who are in opposition. So have this humility about you. I, I just hate self-righteousness. God can't work through self-righteousness. He said there's this tax collector and, and he's sending his head off. He's going to the prostitutes and stealing from people and being a tra traitor to his people and giving the money to the Romans and living a high life when the other Jews are oppressed in his town. But he's the tax collector and and he just goes into the temple. He's just broken. He can't take it. And he just beats his chest going, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And then the Pharisee comes in and says, Lord, thank you. I'm not a tax collector or a sinner like that man. And they both left. And Jesus said, which one of them are righteous before God? I tell you, it's not the guy who can check all the boxes of living this good moral life. It's that guy who understood the reality of his sin. And you're self-righteous. It's simple. You're not seeing yourself in truth. You see, humility in and of itself is when you just give an accurate account of yourself. So if I just won a gold medal at the Olympics and they said, man, you're the best in the world. Oh, no, 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 no. I may be better. Best guy in my town, maybe my state, but you know. Would that, wouldn't that be a false humility? You just won the Olympics. You are the best in the world. You just got a gold medal. You say, yep, fastest guy on earth. Okay, and that would be humble. It, it, you wouldn't be prideful if you said that. It's just the truth about you. Moses writes that he was, you know, by the, by the Holy Spirit's direction, he writes, I'm the humblest man on earth. But God, God said, that's true about you, Moses. And Moses said, okay, that's true about me. I believe that, God. It didn't make him not humble. It was just the truth. And so, you know, when you go into correcting people, know the truth about yourself. I like the best the way it says it in Galatians 6, verse 3 and 4. 
right after it says, have a spirit of gentleness, restore those who have fallen. Then he goes on to say in verse three and four of Galatians six, for anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, <laughs> he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. Then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not another. In other words, if, if you can say, man, I'm the most righteous guy I know. I'm the holiest guy I know. I'm the strongest Christian I know. So now let me correct you from that point of view. He, he's just going, you're, it's ridiculous. You're, 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 you are not a truly humble person. You are not a person who can really correct anybody else. Jesus said, if you got some guy that just wants to correct people, he's a hypocrite. He said, it's like he's walking around with a giant log in his eye, trying to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. It's like, sorry for the branches hitting your forehead. Let me pull them over here. Let me find that speck. Now, did Jesus say, you're wrong about the guy who has a speck in his eye? No. He said, you're absolutely right. And he does need help with that speck. But you first got to go take the log out of your own eye. You first got to see that the reason you saw the speck is because you have a log. Because you're twice the sinner that guy is, 100 times the sinner that guy is, and after you're broken before God and, and God gives you the tools and the scriptures to be delivered from that log in your own eye, now what, you're going to go to that guy and go, dude, I just got a tree out of my eye on this same subject. And you, you have no tree. I mean, you just got a tiny, tiny sliver I can barely see. But it's still irritating you, isn't it? He didn't say, say you have a tree in your eye and so you can never help anybody else. No, he said, you, you, you've seen it rightly. But first, you've got to have that humility, that meekness, that true, accurate insight on yourself. And now you can correct those who are in opposition. The word correct there is educate to give guidance. So it's, it's not saying I'm rebuking you in the name of Jesus. It's simply saying you're doing this. Here's what the Bible says about that. And you should be doing this. And here's what the Bible says about that. And here's a story I want to tell you. Here's a situation I want to explain to you. Let me give the testimony of my own life, right? Revelation says the testimony of the saints overcome Satan, right? And then it says a, a really interesting thing there. If God perhaps will grant them repentance. In verse 26, he'll say that they may come to repentance. It's not very hopeful. And so I'm just trying to, to, to brace you guys with the reality that we're not doing it because we're going to come away successful. We're probably not going to come away successful. That's the reality of it. When people who know the truth and they deviate from the truth, you can read Hebrews 3, 6, and 10. He makes it clear that it's hard for a man who's tasted those things of God and experienced the work in the Spirit and understands the depths of the doctrine when he turns away to ever come back to repentance. In many cases, it's impossible that they'll ever come back to repentance. Hebrews 3 says that they've, the deceitfulness of sense has hardened their hearts and they have departed permanently from God. So I, I'm just telling you that 
it's serious business. And that's why it says in Hebrews 3, so if you see that happening, exhort one another daily. Rebuke them now. Talk to them now. Why it's still called today. Because when the sun goes down, Satan's claws get one inch deeper into them. The chances are it'll be less of a chance tomorrow. Right? And so perhaps you're not doing this because, you know, if, if they repent, you've won. If they don't repent, you lost. No, you've won by being obedient to Christ and speaking the word. And perhaps in time, the prodigal will come home. <laughs> they don't always come home, do they? And then it says that they may know the truth and that they may that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. That they might know the truth, that they might come to truth. Not, it's not here talking about, oh, a verse I never knew. Well, yeah, you know, had I known that verse out of Isaiah 37, I never would have believed that doctrine. Wow, I got to read the Bible more. That's not what it's talking about here. He's talking about the deception of Satan with they would be released from the blindness. And what he's talking about, that they would come to the truth, it's the truth in the inwardmost parts. Peter, Paul, all of them talk about how certain Christians want to believe certain things because it gives them a license to sin. We read that verse last week in 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that each of you should know how to keep his body in sanctification and honor. And then he, he says, the very next verse, we didn't look at it last week. He said, and if anybody tells you differently, they're not of the spirit of God. Why does he say that? Because people are telling him differently. Yeah, you know, nobody can be holy like God is. Don't even try. You know, we're sinners and he'll forgive you. Don't worry about it. Live and let live. Well, I don't have time to go into it tonight, but in 2 Corinthians 7, when the guy who had married his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5, he really repented. Well, let's read it, actually. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 through 11, we see true repentance. We see here where somebody came to the knowledge of the truth. And he said, this is what it looks like. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. They were mad at Paul after the 1 Corinthians letter. Though I did not regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle that made you sorry, though only for a while, now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that the sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might, um, to, might be led, sorrow to lead to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. Here's what it looked like. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourself. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. And all these things. You prove yourself to be clear in this matter. And then you see the fellowship coming back. Look at verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 7, 13. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. We rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. 
So they wrestled. They had a church split. I'm not going to kick that guy who married his father's wife out of the church. They were rejoicing in it. They were celebrating. Look, the grace of God covers you even if you marry your, your stepmom. This is what we do in Christianity. This is what it looks like. We just let it go and live and let live. And, 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 and Paul says, no, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We don't accept those kind of things. What are you talking about? And, and the church sided with the guy, not Paul. And eventually the church sort of fell apart and the guy left the church. And whatever was left in the church, he said, you guys, finally, it took you a while to come to terms and so he, he says there that you might come to your senses or literally snap out of, of the blindness you're in and escape the snare of the devil. It's spiritual. You say that, that Christians can't get to a place where Satan blinds them again. They can in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, he's writing to the Christians there and he says, be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Or the NIV says, let the devil have a foothold in you. So yeah, if we start sinning, if we start living in the world, we're walking out from under that umbrella of the protection of God, Satan can come back and, and get a foothold. Remember in 1 Timothy 1, we saw it, that Hyamedes and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And then 1 Corinthians 5, the one we were just talking about, the guy who had married his father's wife, he says, the next time you're together with my spirit there, I can't physically be there, but my spirit's with you and the Holy Spirit's with you. Judge this guy. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he says, I deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Like Ananias and Sapphira were killed. It doesn't say that they lost their salvation. It doesn't sound like he's questioning this guy's salvation, even though he married his father's wife. He, he just says, I've, I've got to take every bit of umbrella that's over that guy and take it off him. And because he's sort of tiptoeing out and trying to be in Christ and have this pagan mindset. And, and he said, no, we're, we're kicking him out. Let Satan do what Satan's going to do. Don't, don't give him the covering of the church. That's the last thing he needs. Boy, I, I think one example in the Bible as we finish up here of somebody who lost their senses and became ensnared by the devil. In a word, Samson. <laughs> you know, he, he just had so many human elements working in his way. The charisma, the good looks, the strength, the power as a judge. He just never had to really grow in depth spiritually. His parents set him apart as a vow of the Nazarite, and he, he sort of kept it. Remember the three things, right? He, he, he couldn't have anything to do with the grape, drinking wine or anything like that. He could never be around the dead, anything dead, animal or human being. And he could never cut his hair. Back when I was a smart like teenager, my grandma would say, why is your hair so long? Got the vow of the Nazarite, grandma. Got the vow of the Nazarite. And uh, 
But remember, he, he did drink the wine and then he killed the lion and then came back and got the honey out of the lion. And then he's now just going right into the middle of the enemies and they are all around him wanting to kill him and nobody can do it. And he goes down, he's, he's on this tour to, to visit harlots, to visit prostitutes in the various cities. He goes down to Gaza and checks out some harlots, works out pretty well. Then he goes down to the valley of uh, Sorek and, and, and he finds a prostitute there, Delilah. And he's like, wow, this, this is a relationship that could work in his mind. Immediately, the Philistines came and said, we'll give you a lot of money if you can figure out how to, for us to capture this guy. And so she starts asking him, how is it you're so strong? What would happen? And, and he said, ah, I'll tell you, Delilah, if anybody ever finds out I'm in trouble, but if somebody got seven bowstrings and they tied me up, I'm like any other man. The next morning he wakes up, tied up with seven bowstrings. Now tell me you wouldn't get the heck out of there in a normal day. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've woke up with seven bowstrings uh, being tied up. And it's just, it's, he's told one person that in <laughs> the next morning. And then, it, you know, he's not affected. He's still hanging out with her, thinking, hey, it doesn't matter. She can't, she can't hurt me no matter what. And then she presses him and presses him. She says, okay, okay, if you use brand new ropes, I'm weak. The next morning, he's tied up with brand new ropes again. And then time goes by, and she just presses him and pesters him daily until, oh, excuse me, I'm missing one here. Um, the, he says, okay, if you take seven strands of my hair and put them in a loom, you know, like you make a rug, then I'll be weak. He wakes up with a loom in his hair. Now, I mean, this, these are just not coincidental. This is still not enough. And then finally, he tells her, I, I have strike three coming. I've already been around the dead. I've already drank wine. But if uh, my hair is cut and she did it, and Samson, it says he woke up and he sensed nothing different. He didn't feel weaker. The Holy Spirit had departed from him, but he was so out of tune with God that he never felt the Holy Spirit. He, he wasn't, he was grieving the Holy Spirit of God and, and he was just living in this way where the Holy Spirit really had none of him. But God was merciful. He finally came to his senses as they blinded him and put him in shackles, binded him, and then made him do it on oxidu, walking around in a circle, grinding out the, the wheat blinded, binded, and grinded for many, many years. And, um, and there he finally came to his senses in a horrible story because it was right at his deathbed confession that he repented and God gave him one moment of power that he used to know about and he was able to kill more in his death than he did in his life. And so again here, to read these verses once again here in verse 24, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle all, able to teach, patient. That doesn't mean that there won't be times where you speak a very, very cutting word and maybe in a very prophetic, authoritative way like Jesus did. But in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth. 
and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Lord, we come before you here tonight, and we, we know it's, the focus is not on the words we speak. It's just having an apt knowledge of your scripture that we can share and walking in the power of the meekness, the gentleness, the patience of the fruit of the Spirit. We know there's fruit that comes when we're walking in the Spirit. That love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That's an overwhelming power. Somebody walking in the fullness of your Spirit. So give us that grace and let us speak into one another's lives. Truth, but in love to help them grow up into all things into Christ. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you all.